Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. In this episode, a recording from the 2014 Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference, which was held at NUI Maynooth. The conference, now in its fourth year, was generously supported by the UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research, Marsh's Library, Graduate Studies at NUI Maynooth, and the Department of History at NUI Maynooth. This podcast features a paper by Dr. David Heffernan of University College Cork. His paper was entitled Political Discourse in Early 16th Century Ireland, circa 1515 to 1558, a reevaluation. So, the study of political discourse in early modern Ireland has been revitalised in recent decades as the writings of a broad array of writers have been brought into print or been extensively studied. For the Tudor period, attention is largely focused on a number of colonial theorists, such as Edmund Spencer, Richard Beacon, and William Herbert. Similarly, colonial writers such as Barnaby Rich, John Davies and Finns Morrison are now canonical authors for those seeking to understand English perceptions of Ireland under the early Stuarts. Many of these studies have contributed greatly to our understanding of 16th and 17th century Ireland. However, in recent years there has been an unfortunate lack of attention paid to the very earliest of these writings, those composed in the first half of the 16th century. This stands in sharp contrast to the period from the 1940s to the 1970s, when much work was done on these documents, notably by D.B. Quinn, Dean Gunter White and Brenton Bradshaw. For example, Quinn retrieved the mid-century colonial theorist Edward Walsh from obscurity. White's study of early colonial commentary on and activity in Tudor Ireland was one of the most impressive doctoral theses completed on Irish history. While Bradshaw argued the case in the Irish constitutional revolution of the 16th century, for the importance of a handful of treatises written between 1515 and 1533. But there has been a comparative lacune sense with scholars of Tudor Ireland focusing their attention on texts composed at the close of the 16th century, above all on Spencer. The present paper seeks to make some small contribution towards correcting this imbalance. In particular, it will highlight how many key government policies used to conquer or reform Ireland in the 16th and indeed early 17th centuries were first recommended at this time, while much of the colonial rhetoric which would come to dominate political discourse in early modern Ireland became firmly entrenched during the Henrikian period. As such, this paper will argue, contrary to the inference of the identified neglect of early Tudor tracts on Ireland, that at least in practical terms, these papers were far more important than more ubiquitous treatises composed in the late 16th century. Perhaps one of the reasons why there has been some neglect of the treatises written in the first half of the 16th century is owing to a belief that there was considerably less policy papers produced during these years than in fact there were. This is in part owing to Bradshaw's The Irish Constitutional Revolution, which concentrated on four treatises, the State of Ireland and Plan for its Reformation, written in 1515, possibly by the Archbishop of Armagh, John Coyte, William Darcy's Articles, also composed in 1515, a discourse on the state of Ireland written in the mid-1520s, most likely by the butler agent Robert Cowley, and abbreviate of the getting of Ireland and of the decay of the same by the chief baron of the exchequer, Patrick Finglas, which was completed by 1533. Bradshaw was largely correct to focus on these documents, as they are probably the most significant of the period. However, there were many other important texts and writers at the time. For the reign of Henry VIII alone, there were over 60 extant treatises. For instance, Thomas Howard, the second Earl of Surrey, composed a number of important papers during his time as Lord Lieutenant of of Ireland between 1520 and 1521, which offered his reflections on how Ireland should be governed. The Master of the Rolls and future Lord Chancellor John Allen 
composed his first treatise on Ireland in 1533, and between then and 1556 distributed at least ten further policy papers. Robert Cowley and his son Walter wrote a series of papers on Irish policy between the 1530s and 1549. Others, such as the Master of the Ordnance, John Travers and Thomas Walsh, who might have only written a few or just one treatise as merit consideration, for having been forerunners of policy initiatives which became staples of Elizabethan or indeed Stuart observers. I'll return to the idea of policy initiatives and their origins in a moment, and that will actually be the primary concern of the paper, but first to address the topic of colonial rhetoric. The justification of conquests in Ireland did not originate in treatises written at this time. Rather, it was an inherently late medieval construct which had been repeatedly articulated and legislated for in prescriptions such as the statutes of Kilkenny. However, it was forcefully utilised at this time to encourage a rejuvenation of Crown government in Ireland. This colonial rhetoric centred on just a small number of points, which were greatly simplified in order to rationalise the need for intervention. In brief, they were, one, Gaelic Ireland was dominated by an anarchic political system in which power-hungry lords engaged in near-constant warfare with each other. The second point was that these lords indulged their desire to engage in this anarchical system by maintaining large military retinues through tyrannical impositions often defined simplistically as coin and livery on the commons of Charles. As such, there was a moral obligation to intervene in Gaelic Ireland to liberate this oppressed underclass. And three, the descendants of the 12th and 13th century Anglo-Norman or Cambro-Norman conquerors of large parts of Ireland, which I'll define as variously known as Anglo-Irish or Old English, had degenerated culturally and politically by adopting practices such as coin and livery and Irish dress. The conclusion of these analyses were that there was a necessity to intervene in Ireland to bring the perceived anarchy of the Gaelic system to an end and to reverse the degeneracy or Gaelicisation of the Old English. This colonial rhetoric was best articulated in the more well-known treatises of the period, particularly Darcy's articles, The State of Ireland, written in 1515, and Fingus's Breviate. But elements of this analysis often suffused the voluminous policy papers produced by officials such as Allen and Cowley. This rhetoric became the overwhelming justification for intervention in Tudor Ireland, and later observers, notably Spencer and John Davies, viewed these initial considerations as pivotal to the renewed conquest. But the greater significance of these early treatises lies more in the practical policy ideas which were recommended therein. These could either propose conciliatory or coercive measures to extend Tudor rule in Ireland. But whether the approach was benign or aggressive, the desired end was to amalgamate those parts of Ireland not currently under firm crown rule into the Tudor state. The most straightforward approach to doing this was to undertake a campaign of direct military conquest. This was forcefully argued for in the 1515 state and Fingless's Breviate, two texts which it has been argued were written with the aim of initiating a programme of benign commonwealth reform, but which were in effect blueprints for a renewed conquest of Ireland. I won't go into this in much detail because I did give a paper on the Breviate a few months ago and I don't want to bore anybody that might have heard it on that occasion for a second time. Simply put, there is evidence in terms of the number of extant manuscript copies and there's 17 copies of the Breviate. And in terms of the contemporary citations of the text, to indicate that the Breviate was considered a key text by contemporaries. In it, Fingless outlined a scheme for renewed conquest of Ireland, beginning with a regional conquest of the lordships of the MacMorra Cavanaghs, the O'Burns and the O'Tools in South Leinster, and the introduction of colonies of English settlers there. 
In the years that followed, officials such as Allen and the under-treasurer William Brabazon adopted Findlas's ideas, though when regional conquest was actually undertaken from 1546 onwards, it was in the Midlands rather than South Leinster that it was attempted. If regional military conquest and colonisation was the primary strategy argued for and employed by those who favoured a coercive approach to governing Ireland, the principal approach favoured by those who recommended conciliation was unquestionably the policy known to posterity as surrender and regret. Not only was this devised in the Henrikian period, but it was also implemented between late 1540 and 1543 under the administration of Anthony St. Ledger. Surrender and regret obviously pretty prominent throughout the 16th century, but I'd argue that it kind of lost its initial vigour after 1543. <coughs> Surrender and Regrant again had very firm roots in the history of late medieval Ireland, when indentures had regularly been negotiated between the Crown and the heads of Gaelic lordships. However, what was implemented from 1540 onwards was different in that the acknowledgement of the Gaelic lords as a subject of the Crown was usually undertaken with a grant of a title. In tandem, this led to the formal promulgation of Henry VIII as the first English King of Ireland. Despite its prominence in the historiography of the period, surrender and regret was not proposed in very many policy papers of the time. In far fewer than, for instance, those which recommended the regional conquest of South Leinster. In fact, there are only three extant papers which did so. The earliest, the Discourse of the Cause of the Evil State of Ireland, written in the mid-1520s, recommended negotiating indentures with O'Neill, O'Donnell and the Mac William Burks. But this was part of a broadly coercive approach which aimed to militarily reduce the Gaelic-held parts of Leinster. The second was a paper written around 1537, which suggested that the heads of the MacMorra Cavanaghs, the O'Burns and the O'Tools, should receive formal recognition of their status by the Crown in return for beginning the Anglicisation of their lands. Finally, in 1541, at the height of the Surrender and Regrant campaign, St. Ledger's close associate in government, the Lord Chancellor Thomas Cusack, drew up a treatise which anatomised the programme then underway. These are the few very explicit treatments of what we now term surrender and regret, but it is curious that so, many, so few pronouncements were made on this in contrast to more coercive approaches. While conquest and conciliation were the broad overriding strategies for the governments of Ireland, administrative and regional problems required more specific solutions than ideas about regional conquest or surrender and regret. Here, too, Henrikian and mid-Tudor policy commentators in Ireland proposed many of the ideas which dominated Tudor efforts to respond to regional difficulties. One such was the proposal to appoint provincial presidents. Ever since the publication of Nicholas Canny's The Elizabethan Conquest of Ireland in 1976, the Tudor initiative to establish provincial administrations in Munster and Connacht, overseen by a provincial president, has become firmly associated with the early Elizabethan period, and in particular with the vice-regal tenure of Henry Sidney. While numerous studies have pointed towards some limited antecedents, the scale of the advocacy of provincial presidencies during the Henrikian and mid-Tudor period is often underestimated. On the basis of the extant evidence, the scheme would appear to have originated with John Allen. In a report which he sent to Cromwell in 1533, he proposed that a council be established in Munster, largely comprised of the temporal and ecclesiastical lords of the province. Thereafter, proposals began to abound. William Brabazon also recommended a Munster Council in 1539, while three years later in 1542 the Master of the Ordnance, John Travers, composed a treatise which outlined a proposal for councils in both Munster and in Ulster. Moreover, Travers' writing appears to have coincided with efforts to have an embryonic council established in Munster. This did not come to fruition, and in 1546 Allen reaffirmed his belief that a council ought to be established in the South. 
It may have been this which led to a renewed effort to arrange for the establishment of a council that year. The evidence for this is scant, but it appears that the Archbishop of Cashel was intended to serve as president. In 1549, Walter Cowley recommended a council in Connacht for the first time, along with Munster and Ulster. The most expansive proposal, however, was outlined by Thomas Walsh in a treatise which he composed in 1552, which provided details on the administrative duties of each of the council members, the military force to support the president and council, and even a model diagram of the court they would keep. Um, It's not very good. Walsh was no artist. Um, Thereafter, in the 1550s, numerous policy commentators, such as Edward Walsh, Thomas Cusack and Roland White, continued to advocate provincial presidencies. By 1560, the proposal had become a stated aim of government, both in the policy papers of the Irish Viceroy, the Third Earl of Sussex, and in a memoranda circulating between William Cecil and other senior ministers in London. Provincial presidents were finally appointed to Connacht and Munster in the late 1560s. Thus, we have an example of a policy which is associated with the early Elizabethan period, owing to its having been implemented at that time but which in reality was devised much earlier in the century during the pivotal period of policy formation for Tudor Ireland. Another regional problem, indeed the foremost problem faced by the Tudor state in terms of uh, regional problems, was that posed by the incursion of Scots settlers in the northeast of the country, particularly the Macdonalds into Antrim and Down. Again, this was an issue which had been prevalent throughout the late medieval period. However, the scale of the problem fluctuated as the diplomatic situation changed both between the English and Scottish crowns and also Edinburgh's relations with the Scots of the Western Isles, various elements amongst which were often estranged from the Scottish crown and who could thus be looked to as a potential alloy of England. Accordingly, different approaches were developed for confronting the Scots problem. They could be courted as an alloy or measures could actively be taken to expel them from the North East. Studies of Elizabethan Ireland have long noted that the primary strategy employed to expel the Scots was either to launch large military expeditions into the northeast, such as were undertaken by Sussex in the late 1550s, or to plant colonies of loyal English settlers along the northeast coast of Antrim and Down in order to expel the existing settlers. The latter approach was most actively pursued by Thomas Smith and the First Earl of Essex in their abortive efforts to colonise parts of Antrim and Down in the early 1570s. But again, this approach was not something which was first devised by Elizabethan officials. As early as 1515 in the state of Ireland, a proposal composed in that year, a proposal was put forward to conquer and settle much of northeast Ulster, with a particular emphasis on securing the coastal regions around the Ards Peninsula, Carrickfergus, Greencastle, the Glens and the Route. In the years that followed, officials such as John Allen and John Travers continued to propose measures to restrict the Scots from gaining access to northeast Ulster, in particular by stationing a small fleet of ships to patrol the North Channel. Here again, the basic principles of how to confront a problem facing the Tudor state in Ireland were firmly established during the reign of Henry VIII. The most controversial of Tudor policies was unquestionably what is typically referred to as scorched earth tactics, and which typically involved the desolation of the country to induce famine conditions in order to starve elements opposed to Crown government into submission. This is a topic which is overwhelmingly associated with Spencer in his infamous passage in The View, describing the desolation wrought in Munster by the Second Desmond Rebellion. But Spencer was not the only advocate of these extreme tactics, and contemporaries such as the future Lord Deputy Arthur Chichester, Captain John Dowdle, Captain William Mostyn, and Captain John Murbury were equally as blunt in their advocacy of scorched earth tactics. 
But 50 years prior to their time of writing, scorched earth was first recommended by a Tudor policy speculator. This was outlined in a letter from Robert Cowley to Cromwell in 1536. So, it's a quote. The very living of the Irishry doth clearly consist in two things, and take away the same from them, and they are past forever to recover. Take first from them their corns, to burn and destroy the same, so as the Irishry shall not live thereupon, then to have their cattle and beasts. Thus, the most extreme of solutions to the Tudor problem of Ireland was recommended as early as 1536. Even policies which were not to be implemented for a considerable period of time in Ireland were first recommended during these years. For instance, transplantation of portions of the Gaelic Irish Seps in order to break the political power of a particular lordship was not first attempted until the early 17th century. But this solution was first advocated as early as 1537, when the Irish Council, in a letter to Cromwell, alluded to the possibility of settling the O'Connor lordship in Offaly with English settlers while O'Connor should be provided with lands elsewhere. The Midlands was also the focus of the second transplantation proposal made during the period, a scheme which was far less genial than the Council's proposal to compensate O'Connor for allowing English settlement in the Midlands. This was devised by the Lord Chancellor, John Allen, and outlined in a letter to the Comptroller, William Paget, in 1548. Here he proposed the removal of some of the leading O'Moores and O'Connors to the English-held pale in France around Calais and Bologna, where, if they were killed, the king had lost never a true man and long from hence. These proposals were not implemented, but transplantation continued to be intrinsically linked with the Midlands and the O'Moores in particular. In 1584, Ralph Lane proposed transplanting the O'Moores to Kerry, while the first transplantation scheme to actually be implemented in Ireland was undertaken in 1608, when Patrick Crosby oversaw the transplantation of a substantial proportion of the O'Moores from Leash to Kerry. But it was possibly in the sphere of religious reform that the significance and longevity of the proposals made by Tudor officials in the first half of the 16th century is most clearly seen. One of the cornerstones of any programme of religious religious reform in Reformation Ireland was to provide for the provision of suitably trained ministers to promulgate the Protestant Reformation. It was soon realised that this would necessitate the establishment of a university in Ireland. Accordingly, in 1549, the Archbishop of Dublin, George Brown, proposed a scheme to suppress St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin in order to facilitate the endowment of a university. Brown's proposal was to dominate official thinking on the establishment of an Irish university for several decades. It was central to a number of proposals put forward in the 1560s. But, more importantly, in the 1580s, when numerous other schemes for the endowment of a university were being devised by figures such as the Munster Undertaker, William Herbert, the Dublin Alderman, John Usher, and even the Irish Viceroy, John Perrett, they were repeatedly rejected by Burley, who continued to favour Brown's proposal for the suppression of St. Patrick's. Given the intransigence of the foremost politician of the Elizabethan period, it was perhaps somewhat surprising that when Trinity College was established in 1592, it was located on the grounds of the dissolved house of All Hallows outside the city. Nevertheless, it was a testament to the enduring influence of Henrikian and mid-Tudor policy proposals that Brown's scheme, although never realised, dominated the dialogue on how an Irish university should be endowed for some 40 years after his time of writing. To conclude, it seems relatively clear that a lot of the primary strategies employed by the Tudors to govern Ireland were at least originally suggested by Henrikian and mid-Tudor officials. 
This paper is argued that in light of this fact, the treatises written in the first half of the 16th century should be acknowledged as more important than the shift in focus to papers written in the last two decades of the Tudor period credits them with. Indeed, they should be acknowledged as crucial papers in the development of Tudor policy towards Ireland because near contemporaries evidently viewed them as such. There are more copies of Finglas's Breviate extant than any other treatise written on Tudor Ireland barring Spencer's view, while the proliferation of copies of texts such as the 1515 State of Ireland and Thomas Cusack's book to the Duke of Northumberland in 1552 indicate the wide readership which these papers enjoyed. Moreover, when James Ware's study of the prominent writers of Ireland, Descriptoribus Hiberniae, was published in 1639, Although his concern was primarily with authors who had produced historical, theological and scientific works, Finglas, Darcy, Cusack and Edward Walsh were all garnered attention on the strength of their policy papers. That where drew attention to these papers is somewhat indicative of how important these papers were in the formation of Tudor policy during the 16th century. And starts to emphasise the primary argument of this paper, that these early Tudor treatises on Ireland ought to receive greater attention in studies of political discourse in 16th century Ireland. Uh, Thank you.